We've seen all the video call fails by now. The mute button mishaps, the cat cameos, people not realizing the camera's on when their pants are off. But none of this makes Fred feel any better about giving an entire sales pitch, mistakenly using a filter that turns him into an itsy-bitsy baby duck. How do I turn this thing off? It's too late, Fred. It's too late. When you realize it's better to do business in person, it matters where you stay. Welcome to the Hilton Garden Inn, Fred. The meeting room is right down the hall. Hilton, for the stay. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Rebecca and I want to extend a big thank you to our listeners who stepped up and pre-ordered our book, Dark Heart, and then tweeted and Facebooked about it. Rebecca, you see like all the tweets? I did. Like people taking photographs of the cover. I'm worried about the follow-up tweets when they get to all the horrible sex parts. (laughs) Well, we also want to thank the uh, podcast listeners who showed up this past week at our book launch and signing in Concord, and we met Chris and Kelsey and another Rebecca uh, and a bunch of other listeners who showed up and made our event seem huge. Huge. Yeah. So it kind of made us think maybe we could schedule a meetup for just listeners someday soon. And maybe we should just get out of New England and, well, we go to Boston, New York. I don't know. Who, maybe somebody who is like a private jet could fly us somewhere. <laughs> do you have a private jet? Are you listening now on your private <laughs> well, jet? We do the meetup on your jet. We could do the meetup <laughs> on your jet. Take us someplace, some venue that would be cheap and serves great drinks. Uh, and of course, just, you know, if you have an idea, send us uh, an email, crimewriters.com at gmail.com. Yep. If you live near a great venue you think would be fun for a podcast meetup, if you know someone who's done a podcast meetup and think we should meet them, if you live in New York or Boston or some other great city you think we should go, I don't know. We're thinking about it, right? Those are all great cities. One other quick note. You might have heard me refer to myself as The Grinder on this show a couple of times. If you don't know the reference, that is from one of my favorite new TV shows to come out this season. I am not a lover of sitcoms, but I love The Grinder. Tuesdays on Fox after Brooklyn Nine-Nine. <laughs> it's about a TV lawyer played by Rob Lowe. His show gets canceled, so he decides to go home to Boise, Idaho and join the family law firm, which is run by his brother, who is played brilliantly by the hilarious Fred Savage. It really is good. It's so good. It's the like show, if you like Arrested Development, you'll love the show. I feel like uh, Parks and Rec. I mean, it's just yeah. a great vibe. The show has Mary Elizabeth Ellis, and she's awesome, and William Devane, and he's awesome. Both William Devane and Rob Lowe played uh JFK at one point. Fun fact. And uh, Fred Savage played uh, an octopus named Oswald. Coincidence? <laughs> Fred Savage also does the voiceovers on Honda Civic commercials, He's by the great. way. He's great. Anyway, in case you're wondering, neither Fox nor the Grinder people are paying me to plug their show. But they should. But no. <laughs> since I mentioned it on our podcast, I found out we have a couple of people on the crew of The Grinder who listen to this show. And so I want all of you, if you haven't seen The Grinder, go to your on-demand menu, start from the beginning, watch The Grinder, and then tune in when the show airs on Fox so that this show can get some support and get some audience and maybe get picked up for another season because I'll be honest with you, I'll be really disappointed if it doesn't come back. It's a smart show. I think they will like this. If you like well-written TV, if you like funny TV, if you want to support a fellow podcast listener, check out The Grinder. Just do it. 
Grinder out. <laughs> so I guess that is now time to ask you to support this show by using our Amazon link at crimewriterson.com. And that means it's also time for, as you guessed it, Toby's list of items purchased this week on Amazon by Crime Writers on listeners. Okay, Grinder, roll that tape. But what if I didn't? What if you did? <laughs> Fresh Effects Bead Me Up Exfoliating Cleanser. Nutritional Yeast Flakes, 1 pound, 16 ounces. Vitamin B fortified. Adam's Christmas, 5750-88-1040. Giant Suction Wreath Holder. DDL Biz One Pieces Punk Goth Rivet Handmade Chain PU Leather O-Ring Heart Choker Necklace White Outdoor Research Deluxe Spring Ring Headnet Bug Protection Hat New Super Mario Brothers Happy 5th Birthday Balloon Kit Rebecca Lavoy, and this is Crime Writers on Serial, Season 2, the podcast about a podcast and also about journalism, pop culture, true crime, and occasionally other podcasts. Today, we'll be talking about Serial Season 2's big Episode 9 Zoom called Trade Secrets. We'll also check in on that huge news to break in the never-ending saga of the O.J. Simpson case. So joining me to do all of that is my true crime co-author and real-life husband, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. For the record, Rebecca, my hands are not small. (laughs) (laughs) But if they were, they'd be terrific. (laughs) (laughs) And on the line with us from her music room is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, and licensed private investigator, Laura Bricker. Welcome back, Laura. Thank you. And returning from a harrowing journey after his well-deserved vacation is our resident devil's advocate, crime fiction and noir novelist, Toby Ball. Welcome back, Toby. Thanks, and congratulations on your book being published. Well, thank you, Toby. We missed you very much at the book launch. We'll have to do some sort of outing for our listeners and, uh, you know, maybe do it again sometime. It was a good time. That sounds like fun. In episode nine this week, we got a big, big zoom out all the way to the White House. Now, I was pretty overwhelmed after my first listen to this episode, so I sent out one of our handy MailKimp emails to our trusty newsletter posse, and man, they came through in spades. I'm happy to say every single thing we'll be talking about was in some form inspired by one of the dozens of emails I received in return. So thank you, listeners, for contributing, and remember, you can join our brilliant email posse by signing up for our newsletter at crimewriterson.com. So one detail that we heard a lot about on the internet today and that some of our listeners, especially listeners who live in other countries, maybe English wasn't their first language, didn't quite understand. About 10 minutes into the podcast, I think we need to weigh in on this. Was it an editing flub to hear Sarah Koenig clear her throat or was there something else going on? Kevin, you want to just tell us what you think was going on? At first, I thought, because I, I, I was so intently listening and then the, the, the cough came in and I thought instantly, oh, they blew this edit. 
And then somebody on Twitter pointed out, no, go back and listen to what she said before she cleared her throat. And she used the term mutual release. <laughs> and then she cleared her throat. Yeah. And it was like, oh, my God. And then people, some people still don't get it. It's a euphemism for a simultaneous orgasm. Yes. Can we just say mutual pleasure? Mutual pleasure. At the beginning of the show, Kevin. The, we, we don't, we don't that's need what to a gross. mutual release is. <laughs> so for our, it's, a well, it's a well-timed mutual pleasure. But it's yeah, well-timed. <laughs> but, but it's so funny because a lot of people are like, hmm, what is this thing that she's saying? Is she making a commentary about U.S. foreign policy? And everybody read a whole lot into it. And then you just realize, no, she's just winking at us because it's a dirty joke. Well, another funny thing happened this week in the podcast sphere. I was listening to the Black Tapes podcast, and there was either a mis-edit or an intentional mis-edit in one of their ad spots for Squarespace. Like Alex Regan, who's the character, lead character on the black tape, like flubbed the ad, like repeated a line. And it was left in. And I first listened to it and I was like, oh, oh. I heard that same thing. Yeah. And there's a lot of stuff on the Internet about, you know, she's supposed to have lost a lot of sleep. So maybe that was them show, like, like showing that. And I'm just like, you know what? I guess sometimes you can leave that stuff in on purpose. But um, what do you think of that as an editorial choice, Laura, to just use that throat clearing as a way to nod, <clears> to, <throat> a nod to the dirty joke and, and, and what's and, happening over there and just moving on what do you think of that yeah I mean I didn't actually notice it that much until I started seeing it on Twitter I, I you know I think it is again showing us a little bit more of Sarah being Sarah and kind of letting her own sort of editorial slant coming into things a little more authentic what do you think Toby <clears throat> <laughs> Uh, it reminded me of you leaving in the, maybe I should read that one again on the uh, Amazon reads. Fun with editing. Yeah, fun with editing. I, I feel so powerful when that when that kind of thing happens. All right. So After the artificial insemination one, Toby cleared <laughs> yeah. his throat. Al. For Al. <clears throat> for Al. Because <laughs> if it really was for somebody named Al, you really would want to, like, clear your throat. Okay, okay. And let's, your browser history. Let's... <laughs> Let's move on to the substance of this podcast, shall we? Is there substance to this podcast? There is. This was a huge episode. Yes. This is what we have been waiting for, or so we've been saying, so we should probably talk about it. We hear at the beginning of the episode uh, that Bo is part of uh, actual peace talks going on with the Taliban to end the Afghan war. These were called confidence-building measures. He's described at that point, though, as a line item, but an important line item nonetheless. I'm curious, Toby, what do you think of that characterization of Bo's potential role in these much larger peace talks that were starting at that time? Well, I think I think you work with what you have in those situations. And I think one of the things that they had to get past was how do we develop some kind of trust because there's clearly nothing there. So what kind of what actions can we take in order to sort of start to build those bridges. So I think you could kind of take a look at what the options are, and Bo was like clearly an option to get that kind of interaction going. Laura, you know, we heard what was going on with Bo at this time, you know, when he was in captivity, and we know what he was going through when he was being talked about as this line item. To you, was there some dissonance between, you know, the life you knew he was living and the way he was being weighed and measured? in terms of his role playing in these peace talks? You know, we've talked a lot in the past about how it seems like Bo was sort of sitting there until they needed him at times. And it was clear when we had the episode about Tampa that 
there wasn't like a real concerted effort to get him back, a real organized effort. To me, this this whole episode really was what I've been waiting for this whole season in terms of finally getting the big picture of where Bo was fitting in. But I think it does sort of take some of the humanity out of it where he's really just a pawn in all of this and a, and a piece to be moved and brokered. What did you think of this setup of the episode, Kevin? Oh, I, th- I thought it was good. I, you know, my first thought was peace talks. Right. Did we have peace talks? You know, other, sort of. We kind of did, and I guess <laughs> I kind of forgot about that leaked, um, you know, story in Der Spiegel. So the idea, yeah, there was. Okay, we finally zoomed out, and there is a much bigger thing going on. The whole idea about what the diplomats were trying to do and how it kind of seemed not at odds with the military, but just they weren't working hand in glove like you sometimes need to. I thought that was all really interesting, and you know, certainly the last. You know, that double episode was so very intimate about who Bo is. Now, all of a sudden, we're going the exact opposite way, where he is essentially a pawn on a chessboard. Right. I mean, I found it very painful to hear about, you know, these protracted periods of time passing. We're setting up a meeting for a few months from now when these conferences are going on. And you know that this young man is, you know, being kept in a cage or, you know, it's like, it's so awful, but I guess that's the only way to kind of go about it when you're working at that level. Things just sort of creep along. We were introduced, you know, we've heard the name Richard Holbrook, certainly, you know, in the context of the news, you know, around these conflicts. And he's really introduced in this episode of the podcast as a character. We hear about him through his wife. We hear him characterized, you know, as somebody that really was a maverick in terms of the way he wanted to deal with a situation in the Middle East and wasn't liked by a lot of people around him, including, it turns out, people high up in the administration and Obama himself. He rubbed him the wrong way, I think was what she said. How could it be that this whole banner of potentially changing the way we did business in Afghanistan was carried by this one guy? Toby, what did you think when you heard that? You know, I guess I don't know if it it's just carried by one guy. I mean, usually it's a guy who's got something behind him, but he's the one who has the ear of the people who can actually make decisions. You know, I think that's why, like, these envoys and, and peace negotiators, you know, they're, they're not a dime a dozen. You know, you need to have a certain way of thinking. You need to be able to figure out ways to get past things that seem intractable. So... I think that's that's the value they have, and and that's why when Holbrook just he died and everything kind of fell apart, and there wasn't anybody to pick up where he had kind of left off. Yeah, I think these guys. That's why you know George Mitchell gets called up again and again, for instance. Right. Uh, Bill Richardson's another guy who seem like they can kind of see past what seems like an intractable position to find small steps that that might result in a bigger agreement. Laura, what did you think of the, you know, we weren't obviously going to hear from Holbrook because he died, but we did hear from his wife and sort of talking about the way that he felt just as if, if this is what he talked about around the house. I know he felt this way. I know he felt that, you know, the solution was not, you know, a full military solution. Did you think that was effective to hear more about Holbrook and and hear her voice talking about him, describing how it was that he felt? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think he came across to me as a a very cause-oriented character. Um, But like you said, a maverick, somebody that was definitely outside the box and somebody that you're sort of rooting for because he seemed to be really the only one that was taking this position. And, you know, like Toby said, once he died, 
nobody else really picked up the ball, which is a little discouraging because it sounds like they were making some headway there. But I loved the details about him. I loved the detail about how he followed Hillary Clinton into the bathroom. I think that was (laughs) a really fun visual to just imagine this guy. I think that really brought his character to life. Now, what about the fact that Holbrook suddenly died? I mean, perhaps I just watched too much of the Americans, but you hear about somebody who's making waves, who's making progress, who's pursuing a strategy that people in the administration don't like. And then you hear about him suddenly dying. And am I the You're only one? You're not going one? there, are no, you? No, I'm not, I'm not going to suppose that there was a, but is, did anyone think it besides me? Nobody no. thought it besides you. I bet Laura did. <laughs> well, I may have briefly, but I'm trying <laughs> to cut back on my conspiracy theories. Well, you know, some of our listeners asked that question and, you know, maybe perhaps we're all watching too much. Maybe we're going, but. we're digging too deep into this. Sometimes people just die at work. Sometimes they do, and sometimes, you know, sometimes there could be more there. I'm not saying that there was. I'm just wondering if but I was the only are. one. I'm, I'm wondering there. if I was the only one who thought that. I don't think that that's an unreasonable <laughs> thing to say. <laughs> are you the only one who still thinks that? No, I mean, I don't still think it, but certainly I, I think it's reasonable to ask right. that question. I don't think it's unreasonable to ask that question. I don't know. Have you ever heard about the CIA doing anything that they shouldn't have done, Kevin? What's the next question? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, um, you know, the talks we heard about, they lead to this series of miscommunications. They lead to this series of human errors. They set the process back. We got a lot of feedback, and I saw a lot on the web about that debacle over the Taliban opening their office, the political office they wanted to open, that huge sort of, you know, what the hell happened with the sign and the flag, and that the diplomat had to go there and take a picture after they took the sign down. And it kind of just made me think that diplomacy feels like it's about posturing and ego and symbolism, but it just seemed like such a dumb thing to hinge the success of something on. Kevin, what did you think about that? I could definitely see that happening, and I don't think it's necessarily because the people on the ground were incompetent. There's a a whole sort of friction between people of different languages and cultures and of goals, and you are like trying to, you know, make these confidence-building efforts, and so you think you have everything down. And even if you just keep saying, look, this is really the one thing that you can't do. You know, somebody go, well, that's good. Let that slide or whatever. But it makes, all of a sudden, it makes a big deal to somebody else. And it's like Toby's green M&Ms in Van Halen's dressing room. It's it's sort of like these little things that all of a sudden derail the whole process. I mean, think of a project you have at work. Everything's okay, but then there's a proverb that says, nobody ever tripped over a mountain. Well, I'd like to talk a little bit more about that, you know, what seemed like a small misstep, because it also occurred to me, I mean, these were, you know, obviously uh, Secretary Clinton is a woman, but, you know, a lot of these conflicts and a lot of these negotiations are sort of framed around these very, very patriarchal ideas of kind of like territory and symbolism and flags and what does this mean and what does this mean? And I... I don't know. And, and, you know, Laura, I'm going to ask you to weigh in because I don't want to hear Toby's naysaying answer. But do you ever feel when you're listening to these kind of stories that it would just go very differently if it was all women around the table? (laughs) Oh, boy. Uh, I don't know. Although as I was listening to this, I just feel like we have to treat everybody with such kid gloves and which really didn't jive with the Taliban to me. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So and I also as an aside, I just have to say, is this where Sarah called the Taliban? I think this is the office that she called. (laughs) Is this the office? That she called. That's yeah. what I want to know. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. But you know, I I think uh, women get a lot. They weren't done. able to open a second one after this. Yeah, it wasn't so, like they franchised like Wendy's. So this like, is a this. mystery solved right here. 
you know, this kind of thing isn't that unusual. I, I don't know if people, when Yugoslavia broke up, there were a couple different things that were just like this. One was which one of the, you know, new republics wanted to call itself Macedonia. And the Greeks freaked out about it. They're like, you're not Macedonia. Macedonia is part of Greece. So don't, by naming yourself something that's actually Greek, you're kind of impinging on our national character. And then another one, which wasn't as well known, but in, um, in Kosovo, which is where the Serbs committed all kinds of atrocities, it's this Muslim population, and they sort of had their own institutions, and they were always negotiating with the Serbs about how much independence they should get. And at one point, the Serbs said, oh, okay, you can fly your flag you want to fly, which is of the Albanian nation, right? And so they were expecting them to fly this Albanian national flag, which is this two-headed eagle. And instead of that, they, they flew the flag of the country of Albania, which is a two-headed eagle with a star on top, which the Serbs took to mean that they want to combine with the country of Albania, that they wanted to secede from Serbia. And, you know, there's a lot of violence around that. So it's these little things that from the outside look like little misunderstandings or or little gestures, but then in terms of these nations that feel very strongly about these things, they, they in fact are, are very threatening. This is why the, you know, the whole diplomatic core is really so important to national security, international security, international trade and commerce. These are difficult kinds of negotiations in order to sort of create openings and friendships or at least non-aggression with other nations. I'm trying to think, wasn't the, the soundbite in this episode, which was Hillary Clinton saying, it's easy. If diplomacy were only about talking to your friends, you would never do it. Right, it'd be very, essentially what yeah, she said. Yeah, you never get anything anything done. So, well, words to that effect. That's what it is. And that's why it can be so difficult. And, you know, it's um, probably in some ways, it probably feels a lot like, you know, a used car negotiation. We're like, we're going to start here and you're going to start here and we're not going to give up. Which is why, like, you know, unilateral peace talks and all this, all the, these other things that the State Department does, it, well, why it takes years. I mean, I know it makes our listeners sometimes, some of them anyway, nuts when I sort of try to distill things, but I still think when I hear this stuff, it still reminds me, obviously, in a much more important way with a lot more cause and effect of like office politics and how you can feel so affronted when somebody says like a certain thing in a meeting that someone else sitting next to you either will not have interpreted that way or just won't care. But to you, it can just feel like that was about me. And they what they really meant was this. And but here we're talking about politics, obviously, like politics, politics. And of course, the, you know, the outcome of those misunderstandings and that poor communication is, you know, horrible war crimes and people dying. And but at the same time, you know, in the office politics situation, when you get beyond it, like you realize like that was just really dumb that I let that be the thing that made me so miserable for you know what I mean yeah and the great thing you know about Holbrook is that his story ends up being the what could have been question I mean if he hadn't been assassinated by the oh, CIA <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know he was the change agent and it's funny that his death like they said actually spurred on stuff but but he was the one who said you know he couldn't see a military solution it has to be a diplomatic solution right and I think that that part of the conversation and this is what I wanted to ask you guys about actually felt like the biggest part of the Zoom to me, even though we heard Obama later in this episode and talked about the administration, Holbrook's philosophy that uh, the military is the wingman 
to diplomacy and that Petraeus used to call Holbrook his wingman and it made him crazy because the way that it used to work was that the military was the handmaiden of diplomacy <coughs> and that <coughs> handmaiden <coughs> stop it and that that entire relationship during the Bush administration you know post 9-11 had completely flipped and all I could think about and Toby I'm curious to know what you think about this is how much of the culture of the military has been influenced by this idea that diplomacy is now second banana to these military operations and that it's generals making decisions and top-level diplomats having to sort of like duck and weave to just try to get like a little thing done? I mean, did you think about that at all? No, I hadn't thought about it a whole lot. I I guess my perception of the military is of the people who aren't the brass is – you're waiting, you're waiting until you get told to do something. It, it seems to me that the priority setting, it seems like that was done on sort of the, and they didn't talk about this in the episode, but that's kind of the the Rumsfeld, Cheney, Bush, that group who's with Afghanistan. I don't know if really we would have been able to negotiate a way not to invade Afghanistan, but but clearly with Iraq, you know, the military option was the first option. There wasn't a whole lot of let's let the diplomatic channels work. We heard about the early negotiations and we heard that Sarah said she spoke to somebody who was in the room at the original meeting and that the Taliban from the beginning wanted these five guys. And that the U.S. had a lot of things that the U.S. wanted. They wanted the Taliban to, you know, treat women differently. They wanted there to be a different sort of way of them just operating. They, and, you know, the Taliban also wanted to be taken off, like, the terrorism list. So there was all this stuff going on, but there was this original thing that the Taliban wanted, maybe, because we also heard that it could have been, you know, different guys at a different place. But this one guy who was in the room says it was these five guys. At the very end of the episode, after all of these false starts, fits, turns, deaths, we get to the point where the swap happens and the Taliban gets exactly what they asked for in the first place. And Bergdahl, who had been a line item and part of a bigger plan, becomes the line item on the list of things that we received. I mean, there could be something else that we don't know about yet, but... I'm wondering, what did you think, Laura, when you you know got to that part of the episode, and I know that I'm skipping ahead a little bit, and it kind of came to fruition that what the Taliban wanted at the beginning is exactly what they ended up with. Yeah, it, it actually kind of surprised me because I was thinking, you know, after the peace negotiations, you know, kind of stalled and then, you know, everything else stalled, it didn't seem at face value like a very fair trade. I mean, you know, one for five. But then I was also really struck by... The description of these five, aside from the guy who, you know, stuck his fingers up someone's nose and slit their throat. Which uh, was, we'll talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of people, and I've talked about this before, when I talk about this season with people who aren't listening to Serial, who already have some pretty preconceived ideas about this case, they're talking about, you don't know how bad those guys were that they let go. They were the ones that were throwing feces at people and all this. And, and now we hear they weren't those type of prisoners. So that was interesting to me. But I'm just surprised that we didn't get more on the trade than just Bo. And I think that seemed to be the sentiment over there as well. Toby, did you feel like we sort of welched on the deal with these five guys? I mean, they surrendered and then we sent them to Guantanamo. These guys walked in and then got other people in the region to hand in their weapons. And there were reporters there. And then they were sent to Gitmo. I think it was it was chaos, you know, is my sense of those things. And that some of the people who were in Gitmo were just picked up in these sweeps so they were just one of a group of people who got picked up. and It wasn't wrong place, wrong time. So, you know, the stories behind it, it's troubling. 
Although, again, that, that one guy who Laura mentioned, he seems like one of those guys who, if you're going to put people in Guantanamo, he should be one of those guys. Mola Faza, General Dawson, the, the, the bad actors, the throat cutter. The, the fi- Faisal. Yeah, 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 Faisal. Faisal. Yes, yes, Faisal, yeah. yeah. You know, he, he clearly... He was one of those guys they probably want to get out of there. I mean, the Afghans were scared of him. I, I don't know if the point is, well, then we sent him to Gitmo because that's kind of, it wasn't like there was a second place that other than these maybe these black sites that we sent him. I think, I think the point of this anecdote is that we had a chance early on to make peace. And, you know, here we are uh, at this point in the story, 10, 11 years later, trying to, you know, make these negotiations happen. I kind of remember the news, you know, very early in the war about these guys were captured and they've surrendered. And, you know, totally forgot about it because nothing sort of ever came of it publicly. So, again, just another opportunity lost. I think the essence of your original question about the deal is who got the better deal? And you said the Taliban got everything that they wanted. I'd say... No, neither side got everything they wanted because they wanted to strike this grand bargain. And this was sort of the well, consolation. We well, and no, I, they were in it and for. And A-Rod did. A-Rod did. <laughs> By the way, what did you think of that nickname that Richard Holbrook gave that liaison, Kevin? I think it was perfectly appropriate. Um, <laughs> Kevin's not a fan of A-Rod, guys, just so you know. Yeah, so who is? Um, no, we'll hear from folks that it's fine. I don't care. Uh, <laughs> I'm getting I'm getting soft in my old age. <clears throat> I'm cutting out all of your throat clearing. I just can't deal with it. It just seems so... <coughs> I just, after it came out of my mouth, I everyone, thought I had to All the throat clearing just seems so deliberate now, but... It, it does. Listeners, doesn't really mean anything from this point on. Till now it did. <laughs> I just said I got soft in my old age. <clears throat> That's uh, all I can say. Uh, oh, my you God. Re- it's, uh, you can just rewind Thank the tape. Donald Trump. Okay. Yeah. <sighs> What were we asking about the deal? Yes, the deal. I don't know if any either side got a bad return, but I think the Taliban probably got a better return. There was a larger context, though, which was not discussed in the episode. One of our listeners talked about the politics around the VA that were going on at the time and that there was a tremendous amount of pressure put on the administration because all of these this VA controversy was sort of exploding and that the view that there was this, the, the optics were bad in terms of like the way we think about our soldiers and our, our people when they come back from war. But there was something else that this made me think of. And, you know, Toby, I'm wondering if, you know, you remember it all. You know, during President Obama's administration, there have been, there's obviously been a lot of headbutting with Congress and particularly over the budget. There have been at least one time that stands out in my memory where, you know, there was sort of a deal in place and then the Congress sort of shut down and the budget process halted. And then negotiating, you know, for the administration side went so badly that they were sort of celebrating at the end, getting a worse deal than the one that was kind of on the table. Celebrating that they had a deal at all. Right. And it ended up being a lot worse. Sort of the skill and the timing of negotiation in this administration has just not historically like felt good, I think, for the public. I mean, Toby, do you understand the sort of correlation I'm trying to draw there to some of these political situations? That you start negotiating and you keep giving up on your demands and they stick with theirs and finally you say, okay, good. Doesn't that seem like a pattern that has been sort of happening in this political gridlock situation in the last, you know, 10 or so years? Yeah, I mean, I think politically that's true. I mean, I think for hostages, there's sort of established precedent for the fact that in these situations, like, Israel often gives like dozens, if not hundreds, of, of prisoners back for three or four Israeli military who are captured. And I think, you know, it, it sounds kind of cold, but I think part of it's, you know, supply and demand. The Afghans didn't have like five or six 
U.S. soldiers they could trade. Mm-hmm. You know, they had one, and they're they're going to maximize what they can get back. We've got a bunch of them, so it's like, okay, these are the people we want. We're not getting back everybody. We're giving you everybody we have, mm-hmm. and we're getting back some people. And I think that's probably the way they see it, and I think that's probably the way the U.S. kind of rationalizes it. They now have nothing. We still have something. I think the answer to the question about how we should feel about the deal, whether it was a good deal, is what is going to come in episode 10. You think so? Yeah, because I think that's sort of the talk about, you know, just based on the clips, you know, we're going to get a lot into about whether this was worth it for Bo Bergdahl and, again, who he is today and how and why public opinion changed so drastically. I think that we should talk a little bit more about, you know, the bigger picture in the politics and maybe some of the ties that Sarah Koenig is trying to make, you know, to our current political climate. But um, first, we have a little bit of business to attend to. Kevin, would you like to attend to the business or would you like me to attend to the business? We're brought to you by Audible.com, <laughs> who provides over 180,000 titles Very smooth. from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, entertainers, magazine and newspaper publishers, and business information providers. And we had like a really big response. Of course, everybody was very happy for us that we landed an advertiser two weeks ago. And you guys responded like by going nuts and getting your free 30-day subscription. I got mine. Your trial <laughs> your trial subscription to audible.com by going to audible.com slash crime. Rebecca, you said you got uh, some did. audio but Did you buy anything? What are you going to get? I actually got my audiobook today. I actually got the new Elizabeth George novel. She is a British mystery novelist who I've been reading for years and years and years, although I will not forgive her for one choice she made by killing off one character who I will not spoil in case you haven't caught up yeah, on the Elizabeth like George books. I'm not going to be like Toby, but I did get her new book, A Banquet of Consequences. It's a uh, Lindley novel. It's actually number 19 in this really literary, fun, British mystery series. This is one of the only mystery authors where I can never figure out what's happening until the very end, which is satisfying for me. And of course, because of the guarantee that Audible has, this is the pitch part, like, I can return it. If I start reading the book and I don't like it, I can get another book. It's pretty cool. It's not like the bookstore will let you do that if you like return it half dog-eared and and whatever. So You can't dog-ear an audiobook, but You can't dog-ear an audiobook made. now. Uh, Laura, what about you? Well, I also got my uh, trial subscription from yes, Audible. That's yes, two. <laughs> I did. Slash crime. Um, and I, I used it because we just went on school vacation week and we had a three and a half hour drive each way. So I got Archer Mayer, who is one of my favorite regional mystery writers. He's from Vermont, and he's a pretty cool guy. He rides a motorcycle. He also works part-time for the uh, death examiner's office in Vermont. So I got one of his latest books called Three Can Keep a Secret, and it was was great. It was uh, set in sort of the scene of when Hurricane Irene came through and really devastated Vermont. And it's about the Vermont Bureau of Investigation investigating some cases in the midst of that storm. A woman that has escaped from the state mental hospital as you're going along, finding out she has some more to her history as to why she was there and um, whether or not she should have been there. And, And then people are getting killed. It was very good, and I ended up having some driveway moments, um, and actually, you know, because I just couldn't wait to finish it. 
from my poor husband who only listened to the first like, you know, three quarters of it. And then he was out. <laughs> well, he, well, then he was out because he was at work. And I'm like, I need to know. I need to know what happened. Was, I need to know what happened. <laughs> Did you at least tell him what happened after the end of the book? He, yeah, he's just like, yeah, whatever. I'm just screwed. You know, he's, <laughs> he knows how it goes. Your poor husband. What about you, Toby? Do you have an audiobook recommendation this week? Yeah, I haven't signed up for my free trial yet. Do but, it. Uh, it's free. Audible.com slash crime. Why wouldn't you do it? Make us look good to Audible. Maybe they'll place more ads. Maybe you'll be the tipping point, Toby. Okay. I'll, <laughs> all right. I've been shaved into it. Anyway, an audiobook that I really liked is called The Outlaw Sea by William Langevich, which I think I'm pronouncing right. Uh, but it's a nonfiction book. It's kind of all over the place. But basically the theme is you know, the oceans are still untamed. They're ungoverned. They're vast. Once you get out into the ocean, the normal laws and sort of protections that you expect as a, as a member of modern society are no longer there. I thought it was a really, really interesting re- listen. What about you, Kevin? Do you have an audiobook recommendation that our listeners should pick up with their free trial membership? Yeah, I'm going to do you one better. I'm going to use Audible's Whisper Sync for Voice oh boy. feature. And I'm going to get with certain Kindle devices, I'm going to get the Kindle version and the audio version of The Girl in the Spiderweb, which is now the continuation of the Elizabeth Sander Millennium Trilogy. But what this feature allows me to do is I can start reading my audiobook, and when I stop, I can click and go right back to my ebook, the Kindle. So be in the same place. And be in the same place. That's and then really I do, cool. It just syncs right up. And so when I'm, you know, at the breakfast table reading my Kindle, it's great. And when I close it up, I can get in the car and listen right where I left off. And that's a great feature. You know, I was actually thinking that would be really good for kids who had to read books for school. Like, you know, because, you know, they never like to sit down and read. And if they were doing the audio one and the reading one at the same time, you could maybe not give them as much crap for listening to the audio version when they were supposed to be reading, if they at least read some of it, you know? Um, I actually have one more recommendation. A listener sent in an audiobook recommendation. This is from Sarah, who loved the book I recommended, The Winter People. She said she's a filmmaker. She's actually looking into optioning the movie rights. But anyway, she recommended a book that, Laura, I think you would really, really like. It's called Big Little Lies by Leanne Moriarty. It's soon to be an HBO miniseries. It's about moms, uh, the lives and lies and scandals of a well-to-do kindergarten set of moms from party invitation snubs <laughs> to murder. So oh, it's, that sounds perfect. <laughs> it sounds like something you would really enjoy. So I think that that's a book that you should check out uh, with your Audible subscription. Just for listeners, audible.com is offering that free 30-day trial membership. Go to audible.com slash crime today and start your free trial today. Again, Show your support for Crime Writers on and uh, get a free 30-day trial at audible.com slash crime. Toby, pressure's on. Laura can get uh, (laughs) premium cable. You can get Audible at least for a month for free, Toby. Yeah. Oh, he likes audiobooks. Give him. I, yeah. I, I listen to a lot of audiobooks. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know what? Uh, maybe we should go back to talking about cereal now. The business is over. Business has concluded. Thank you, everybody, for your great recommendations. Another big question that came in this week, and we I actually saw it a lot on social media. I saw it on Reddit. We got some emails about it, and it was something that Kevin and I also discussed: was the inclusion of Hillary Clinton in this episode of Cereal, and you know the portrayal of Hillary Clinton as somebody trying to get things done, and then you have Donald Rumsfeld portrayed as sort of the obstructionist. And, you know, one of these characters, a former secretary of state, is currently running for president right now. So 
I know how journalism works and I know how it doesn't work. So I'm not going to weigh in first. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But do you guys understand why people would think this was inappropriately political? Yeah, I can can understand why people would, would feel that way. But, you know, taking the politics out of this part of the story is like getting wetness out of water. It's just you can't do that. So, you know, you can make different choices about, you know, whether or not you use the soundbite from Hillary Clinton or not. Can't deny the fact she was secretary of state and we're talking about the diplomatic efforts and, you know, what the, to the extent that she was involved. And yeah, you know, if serial came out after November of 2016, you know, would there be different editorial choices? I, I don't know. Uh, I can see that. I, I don't think it's a bag job, you know, by any sense of the imagination. But I think also if, if you have strong feelings about Bo Bergdahl, you probably have strong feelings about Hillary Clinton, too. Mm-hmm. And so that might just color the way you, you look at that part of the story. Are you being inappropriately political right now, Kevin? I, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> it's hard because it is sort of baked into the, the story. Right. Look, if you didn't mention Hillary Clinton, then you're going to get the other half of the, the folks who are bothered by that saying you intentionally cut her out to make her look bad. Right. In a way, it is a distraction from the rest of the story. Well, it's only a distraction because of her place in in the culture right now. And she's on TV every night as a presidential candidate. But it's a distraction nonetheless. Right. So it's hard. I think it was sort of a damned if you do and damned if you don't. What did you think, Laura? Do you understand why people think that this was a, you know, political statement that was being made here by Sarah Koenig? Yeah. I mean, I think people are just, no matter what side they're on right now, they are just so emotional about this particular presidential election season. So like Kevin said, I mean, I don't think it matters what you do. You're going to come out with somebody complaining at this point. But I mean, it made sense that she was in there. She was part of the story. And I don't think that she was put in there in any sort of way or portrayed in such a way as to sway you one way or another in terms of how you thought about her. I mean, it's a very emotional time politically in this country right now. You know, if you didn't want to get into politics, should have picked a different story. I think ignoring when you're talking about the negotiations between the U.S. and the Taliban and just pretending the Secretary of State wasn't there because she happens to be running for president now seems to be a much more questionable journalistic choice than including her as she is running. I could be wrong, but I don't think there are a lot of people who are going to say, I was really loving season two until they mentioned Hillary Clinton. Right. right. <laughs> I think what would have been even worse. Let's and make America better again. I, I think what would have been even worse and sloppier would have been if in order to avoid the inevitable conversation of people saying this was Sarah Koenig being pro Clinton by would have been if Sarah Koenig had said something like it. I think this would have been sloppy and would have been distracting if she had said Hillary Clinton, who was Secretary of State at the time and now, of course, is running for president, said about Holbrook, blah, blah, blah. It would have just been so ham-fisted and dumb and clearly an attempt to sort of draw those, you know, journalism lines that aren't necessary, I think, when you're telling a story. No, and I'm glad that she avoided saying Hillary Clinton approved the mutual release. Oh. 
wasn't there the Trump soundbite about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We just shoot him. That could be coming up. Maybe we'll get Is that the, soundbite. Well, it wasn't at the beginning. Yeah, it was. It was somewhere in the yeah in the, the season. montage, right? So it's already the presidential stuff has already been introduced. Equal time, man. Equal time. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that came in this week, and um, a lot of the questions that we've been talking about aren't exact quotes from listener emails because you know we got a lot of the same themes and a lot of the stuff I agreed with. The question that I asked in our newsletter was, you know, what would be your first question? And I think for a lot of people, what they sent in was the real question they want to know, you know. And one of the things that uh, we heard from a listener named Aaron was, you know, who is the weakest link here in this when we hear about this unending attempt to try to do diplomacy to get Bergdahl back? You know, is it the person who made the final decision to keep the plan on the shelf? Is it the person who was optimistic and tried to keep it going when it wasn't working? Is it the person who watched it go really slowly and didn't speak up? Is it Karzai, who, you know, may or may not be crazy and we put him there in power and, you know, he's trying to sort of hold that position? Is it the person who leaked the information about the negotiations going on? Who is to blame for the fact that this was such a messed up, protracted process? Laura, what do you think? I just feel like there's so many weak links here. I mean, I think my question is, who is the strong link? Like, why isn't there somebody that rose to the top as the person who took charge and got some sort of a cohesive plan actually moving? It just seems like, I don't want to say it's a comedy of errors, but we've heard so many things this season about near misses. They're following Kim Harrison's computer. We have the two girls in Tampa who are bribing people with beef jerky. It just feels like there are so many people spinning their wheels trying to get things done. And I I came away thinking, like, why isn't somebody taking control of this overall? Yeah, I mean, I think it's tough when you're negotiating with somebody who you just absolutely do not trust to take that leap. You know, looking at this, it seems as though there were times when people were about to be strong and they just couldn't quite do it. So like to point to this person or that person and say, you're the reason why this didn't happen, Like, I kind of have a hard time doing that. It seems like the two people who are kind of named in this who are strong are are Holbrook and possibly A-Rod as being the two people who are kind of willing to put the sort of paralyzing suspicion to the side and try and move forward. What do you think, Kevin? Well, I mean, you probably could say that the weak link is the United States, you know, because there isn't one. It was just sort of this whole mass of people that were moving and undulating, but everybody was pulling against each other and at one point or another, you know, dropped the ball. I think, you know, and I just, I hate sounding, like it's going to sound like this is a political statement, but I think what Serial set up is that if they're pointing to sort of one thing, maybe one agitator that sent us on the wrong way, I think it was the mention of Donald Rumsfeld back in, you know, his reaction to, these Taliban guys coming forward and there's no discussion about, okay, a broader peace. It sets in motion a culture of hyper-belligerence when it comes to this conflict to the point where diplomacy is pushed aside. So I don't know. Laura's answer is probably the best. There's no really, no strong link. You know, there are a couple of people that stand out, but, you know, we just didn't get the job done there. You know, I'm probably going to say something that sounds really political, too, but what it keeps coming back to for me again and again is our need 
to maintain this insane relationship with Pakistan. And that if you listen to this episode, all of the negotiations, all of the sort of when things fell apart, it's like we had to rush to Pakistan to smooth it over. You know, we had to work with Qatar because, you know, we couldn't talk directly to the Taliban. But it's all about, I mean, he was in Pakistan, you know, and our entire relationship with them in this period of time, especially. And you think about the fact that like Osama bin Laden was also living there, by the way. And we have this artifice in our diplomacy and in our, you know, in our government where we have our, like, quote, friends, you know, and you can, frenemies. you can call them frenemies, but really you end up being beholden to relationships that you know are terrible relationships. And it sort of speaks again to this idea of just trying to like keep things cool when they were never cool to begin with, you know, and, and that, you know, let's take the fact that Bo Bergdahl deserted out of the equation, that a human being, I don't care who that person is, is sitting in a cage rotting because we have to go to Pakistan to talk about a flag mishap because they may or may not have understood what the term. It is absurd. It is absurd that it isn't about that more human conversation, that we've taken these conversations, made them so big, and it's, it's almost like a joke. It's like a giant global joke that these relationships exist and that we're beholden to them. Rebecca, as I was listening to you, I was you made a really good point. And it, it's just to me, as I was listening to this, it reminds me, it's like a, a dysfunctional codependent relationship where we know this isn't what we should be doing, but we keep getting sucked back into the cycle, you know, and, and you have your little honeymoon phase and then you're right back at the beginning again, back at the tension. That's just really struck me as you were talking about that. I just want to talk about a couple of small details before we wrap up this part of our conversation. Um, Toby, what did you think of that scene after Bo Bergdahl gets picked up and he's, you know, trying to talk to the guys, the special forces guys who picked him up and like try to give them intel and just trying to like thank them. And it's, it's just very clear it's not going to happen, but that's all he can think about. What did you think of that detail? Uh, <laughs> it's a complicated situation, right? Where he hasn't really talked to anybody. So he's having a hard time forming words. He needs to write something down. You know, he wants to express his gratitude to these guys who are just like, this is like item number one of their day, or, you know, this is one of the things that they're doing this week. Again, he's a um, line, uh, line item on a list. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and so it's, you know, it's ultimately tragic in that after this long ordeal and he's finally rescued and it's not like, you know, he's not getting a hug and a hot cocoa and, you a know, parade. so it's like to see him. It's like, all right, here you go. Put on these clothes. We're going to drop you off here. You know, see ya. That really struck me, the fact that he, he couldn't talk. I mean, I can't imagine not being able to talk. Um, I think my husband would be happy if I couldn't talk. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I just, it, that really was a detail that really hit me as far as, the severity of what he went through. Did anybody else, and this is what I was thinking of, is that these were, these guys were special forces. This is Bo's aspiration, you know? And yeah, he, here they come to get him. He's like singularly focused on being special forces at some point in his life, like it's his dream. He's locked in a cage for five years, and the first thing he thinks of when he sees these guys is, oh, geez, are they special forces? Like, he has an enthusiasm still, and it's still sort of, um, to me, it says he is still who he went in being that he would have that recognition. He understood what their roles were. He knew he should be providing them intel. Like he had, they were characters in his play well, you still. Well, could, you could interpret it that way, but I think the way that it's presented in Serial is that the important thing is the second thing, that as soon as he could kind of get his 
hedge on straight, he was trying to provide intel. Right. You know, like, okay, we just left this area, and this is what I know. Which and, was and, what he was saying he was going to do five years before. Right. And and <laughs> seems to have the, you know, I mean, that's the incredible. makeup, the yeah. physical and mental makeup to be able to do that. Right. Which, you know, would probably be presented as, you know, another mitigating factor in his court-martial that, you know, out of captivity and was able to provide, we believe, meaningful, useful information. One big thing we did not hear about this week, and I was surprised, and I think some other listeners were surprised, that we didn't hear anything about the news that broke last week that potentially there was a ransom paid for Bergdahl. Laura, were you surprised that uh, there was no acknowledgement of that news at all in this episode? Yeah, because that's something I was thinking we were going to hear about this week. Um, It was obviously in the news last week, and we hear about the entire prisoner transfer. So now I'm thinking I would be surprised if there really was a ransom, because it seems like on top of what we already gave them, it doesn't even make sense to me. But I I was expecting to hear about it this week. I was expecting her to acknowledge at least the news. What about you, Kevin? I'm not surprised that she didn't, because it doesn't, I'm guessing that it wasn't part of their reporting, something that they had. And unlike with season one, I think that Sarah and crew have been reluctant to sort of uh, throw what the latest in the news thing is in the in the current episode. No, she actually did do that when he when his charges were changed. He was going to be in a different court. She recorded that little piece of tape that went before the episode that week and talked about the news. And, and that was it. That was it. But it, she did and, it. And, and she, that, that really surprised okay. me. I don't know. It, it surprised me that it wasn't acknowledged. So, Kevin, overall, this episode of Serial, it was pretty epic. It zoomed out pretty far. This is the time of, of our show where we give the episode a letter grade and quickly explain why. What do you give episode nine in season two of Serial for a grade? I'm going to give it a B plus. I think it was chock full with some really great information, good insight against stuff that we hadn't heard before. Maybe I would have given it an A minus earlier in the season, but I felt like Toby. I feel like my grading's all over the place, and I just don't want to be... I'm changing my mind. A minus. A minus. I'm, wishy- okay. I'm being wishy washy. It's you an are. A minus. You are. So, can I talk you up a little further, Professor? Sure. And in some extra credit. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Laura? What grade do you give this episode? Um, you know, I'm going with an A because I think, like Kevin said, this is kind of what we've been working towards all season is what big picture does Bo fit into? And we know now, and I think it's really, really interesting, and it was a really enlightening episode, really put the whole thing into context for me, so I'm going with an A. What about you, Toby? What grade do you give this episode of Serial? With my new grading system. With your new grading system, (laughs) where where you compare it to itself instead of to all of the podcasts you were listening to, even the crappy ones. What do you give this episode of Serial for a grade? Uh, I would give it a B minus. Wow. Ooh. Ooh. And, wah, you know, wah, it's not wah. a D, it's a B minus. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, though. I mean, for sad. Geez, you guys must have been real successful. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, explain yourself, B minus. It was, it was definitely interesting. There's a lot of good stuff. It didn't, for me, like have like the riveting moments that I think the best serial ones have. I guess it kind of lacked sort of the, the either the emotional connection or sort of a visceral response thing. This is just like interesting. It was a lot of information. Uh, I think it was crucial to the story. But, you know, if I take a look at like my favorite serial episodes ever, I don't I don't think this is in the in the top like five or six. This might surprise you guys, but I agree with Toby. And I also give this episode a low B. Uh, for me, I like the information. I'm glad that I know it. Uh, I learned a lot. But 
I can still tell you about the Deirdre Enright episode in season one, you know, episode seven. And it's not because it was a true crime story. And I know that that's what people say, that it's not that for me in this time because Sarah Koenig is masterful at signposting a story and telling you when something's going to be complicated and why you need to listen to these details and just keeping you with her. And she didn't do that here. And I felt like a few times when I was listening the first time I needed to you know, go back three minutes because I needed to be reminded about why something she said was important. And, you know, unlike a show like Tannis, like we've talked about, where I just don't really care. I don't know what's going on. Like in Serial, that's the whole thing. You got to really know what's going on. And you really, I rely on the narration and the way the episodes are put together to get me there. So I give it like if it was just content and information, yeah, like an A. But the delivery and sort of the way it was put together, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in B land, guys. Can you believe it? It's rough. You I talked don't believe me out of we my flip-flopped. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, now it is time, and I am so excited this week for my favorite part of the episode. It is time for us to talk about the crime, crime of, of the week. week. All right. Huge news broke today in the continuing epic saga of O.J. Simpson. <laughs> We had planned to talk some more about the People versus O.J. Simpson in an upcoming show, but now we have this gift. And I promise we'll get to that. I promise we will. We have this gift, a golden opportunity to discuss O.J. Simpson right now. The LAPD has confirmed today that a possibly blood-spattered knife was found buried at O.J. Simpson's Brentwood estate, and investigators are now looking into whether that knife could possibly have been the weapon used to murder Nicole Brown and Ronald Goldman in 1994. While there aren't many details confirmed yet, we do know that a construction worker may have found what's described as a buck-folding knife at the estate years ago, perhaps in 1998, when the estate was knocked down, and handed it to some off-duty cop he ran into in the street saying, oh, hey, I just found this at O.J. Simpson's house. You know, you need to do something with this. Turns out that cop took the knife home and kept it there as a souvenir and was planning to frame it as decor in his house. I thought all the other evidence was framed. <sighs> the cop allegedly told a former colleague about the knife, and uh, that that cop that he told reported it, thank goodness. So the knife is currently being tested for evidence and will be tested for DNA next week. So... Here's the question. O.J. Simpson, we know, cannot be tried for these murders again, even if evidence proves that he did it because of this little thing called double jeopardy. Is double jeopardy, though, something that in certain cases should have loopholes? Laura, what do you think? Um, I don't think so. Stand I, back. I, stand back from the microphone or mine's going to blow up. <laughs> uh, no, but before I even get to that, I just have to say, seriously, I can't even believe that we're considering this. This, this could be legitimate evidence. We have no idea where this knife has been. We have no idea mm-hmm. how it's been kept over these. I mean, I find this yeah. absurd that they're even considering that this could be a legitimate piece of evidence. But anyway, on to double jeopardy. So these are the things that get me crazed. Um, I mean, I think that the, the double jeopardy rule is there to protect people and keep the system fair. Um, without it, you know, there's no guarantee that the state isn't going to continue to harass people and, and use their resources to go after somebody over and over again. Even when do you say enough is enough? And, and how do they decide which cases to pursue again? I think that the rule is there to protect people, to keep the system fair. And in this case, I think it's kind of a moot point because, I mean, this who knows where this knife came from? What do you think, Toby? I have two thoughts. The first is, what's the deal with like framing evidence? <laughs> Because uh, remember when Gene Couchet in Making a Murderer did that? Did his little portrait, his little, That's right. and he framed that. It's bizarre. That's uh, right. Anyway, but as far as double jeopardy, I think that would be a, a terrible idea. 
I think there's enough like vindictiveness on the part of prosecutors and enough like shenanigans that have come up that if you add that to the possibility, you know, if Stephen Avery had gotten off of that trial, do you think Ken Kratz is going to be like, oh, well, I guess I'll move on to the next one. Right. It, it would never end. Can we coin the new phrase prosecutorial shenanigans? I call it prosecutorial shenanigans, Your Honor. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Kevin, what are your thoughts about this knife and the fact that, you know, Laura doesn't believe it, but who knows? Maybe it could prove that O.J. Simpson actually committed this murder and, uh, you mean you know? as opposed to all the other... <laughs> Actual evidence? D- DNA evidence? Yes. Look, I mean, the, the the chain of custody on this this knife, I mean, just cannot be verified. Even if it had blood from... Uh, O.J. and Nicole and Ron. O.J. Nicole and Ron, and Ron all on it. You, you know, you just it, it doesn't... You can't... It's hard to make a case that, uh, yeah, this was the knife. Double jeopardy, you shouldn't, you shouldn't mess with that. If they really wanted another bite at the apple, what they should have done is put O.J. Simpson on trial for the murder of Nicole Brown Simpson and not Ron Goldman. And that way, if they wanted to try him a second time, they could try him for Ron Goldman's murder mm-hmm. instead. Right. And so if they had evidence, you know, that's oh, that that's what Goldman they could do. Family, though, man. But by putting him together, you know, he's acquitted of both murders. Right, right. Um, but I don't think anyone, I mean, the mountain of evidence was so high, I don't think anybody would think. And, you, and, and, you know, what are you going to say to the the Goldman family. Look, you know, uh, we're not going to actually pursue justice for your son just in case something goes wrong. Also, I, I, I doubt, I really doubt that the murder weapon was a, a folding buck knife. Yeah. I'm sure it was a knife that had one of those hand guards because there was so many cuts and so much blood that knife was slippery as hell, even with those gloves. And he had a little cut on his left hand. But he would have, if it were a buck knife like that, it would have gotten so wet and slippery, it would have slipped out of his hands, and the blade would have cut the inside of his fingers pretty badly. Right. And so I, that's just me saying I, I don't think that could possibly be the murder weapon. I don't know. I'm sort of like the grinder of, uh, <laughs> of CSI people. Yeah. Is anybody here besides Kevin and I still watching The People versus O.J. Simpson? Um, I've fallen off the wagon a little. Laura? I watched the first. Yeah, I watched Watch the first it. two. Watch okay. it, because we have All to talk right. about it. It is a fascinating look into a prosecution in a way that is very surprising, very instructive and good. And the look at the defense team is so much more interesting than I thought it would be. And um, I don't know. I think it's getting better and better. And I was with you the first couple episodes. I'm like, little cheese factor, but... Man, has it gotten good. Toby, how about you? Are you watching People vs. O.J. Simpson? I've been away, but I've been taping. Great. So I've Great. got them all there. I'm ready to go. Ready to go. We're it's ready to binge. talk about it. Going to binge on O.J. Yeah, so I have a couple of points just about our crime of the week. One is I wonder how much this miniseries influenced this knife coming to light. I wonder if mm-hmm. maybe this cop was talking about the knife because now this case is back in pop culture. Number two, I think it sort of ironically proves the point that the defense team was making the whole time, which was that the LAPD in the 90s just didn't do a good job when it came to anything related to evidence. And that's like an unexpected irony. But yeah, I mean, I agree with Laura. The chain of custody is very difficult. Double jeopardy should absolutely stay in place. The influence, I mean, uh, I've been checking uh, the uh, true crime chart 
for Darkheart to be near the top, but goddammit, if there aren't 20 O.J. Simpson books that are 20 years old that are all clogging up the Pushing top of the chart. Pushing our book away from yeah, the top of the chart. We're being <laughs> cock-blocked by O.J. Simpson. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's not the first time anybody has ever made that accusation. One last question submitted by a listener named Josh that I didn't have time to include earlier. Toby, who's the handmaiden in your life? <laughs> what? Never mind. <laughs> Kevin, who's the handmaiden in your life? Uh, obviously, you're the handmaiden in my uh, life. Good luck with that. Laura, do you have a handmaiden in your life? I think it might have to be Stampy the Cat. <laughs> <laughs> so we should probably wrap it up on that note. Laura, I know that Stampy's not on Twitter, but you are, right? I am. It's at Laura Bricker, and it's L-A-R-A. Toby, welcome back. We're so glad to have you back, even though we did have a very able-bodied substitute while you were away. If We've listeners... seen his body, too. <laughs> He's ripped. <laughs> if our listeners want to tweet with you, how can they do it? At Toby Ball NH. And how about you, Kevin? How can people find you on Twitter? I am at Kevin P. Flynn. (coughs) Yeah. (laughs) And if you want to send me a tweet, you can find me at Reb Lavoie. Our show is on Twitter at Crime Writers On, and we're also on Facebook. Just search for Crime Writers On Serial. You can also send us an email, make a PayPal donation, or use our Amazon link. You can find them all at our website, crimewriterson.com. And if you love the show and want others to find it, Leave a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference. Our theme music was performed by the New York Ska Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission, and this show was recorded in the studios at New Hampshire Public Radio. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Toby? Toby, are you there? (laughs) Oh, did I lose Toby? No, sorry. (laughs) I was running down the hall to get Sam Evans Brown. I think it's just sort of the, 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 the workload. Someone get that phone. Oh, hold on. I should mute that. I don't know what's going on. That's okay. We shouldn't be getting phone calls in our house anymore. The political season is over here in New Hampshire. It's Bernie. <laughs> Calling oh. <a> thank you. <laughs> Laura, I'd like to thank you and your son for your support. Okay, go. Uh, wait, Rebecca... At- Rebecca and I want to extend a big thank. Why are you laughing at me? Because I, because you you wanted it, that was going to be your big setup, right? No, you're just like cameo. You, you were a professional broadcaster for like 15 years, and sometimes you can't even like start a sentence. I think it's funny sometimes. Sorry. all the video call fails by now. The mute button mishaps, the cat cameos, people not realizing the camera's on when their pants are off. But none of this makes Fred feel any better about giving an entire sales pitch, mistakenly using a filter that turns him into an itsy-bitsy baby duck. How do I turn this thing off? It's too late, Fred. It's too late. When you realize it's better to do business in person, it matters where you stay. Welcome to the Hilton Garden Inn, Fred. The meeting room is right down the hall. Hilton. For the stay.